0: Is that your story this morning? Has God been good to you? You know, sometimes, particularly in our circles, we know that God has been good, but somehow we can't get it out. Have you, you ever notice that? Now, I'm not saying that all the time it should be in an exuberance, and I'm not saying that all the time that our celebration should be loud, but there ought to be certain times where our hearts are so stirred and so moved at the goodness of God, that we cannot be silent. You know, sometimes what happens in our culture is that we live day to day, but the focus is not on yesterday. The focus isn't on tomorrow, it's just we need to get through another day, and that is a dark future when you live in a culture and a world like ours today. Living day by day, expecting something that you didn't have yesterday and hoping for something tomorrow that that you never knew, is just wishful thinking. And I want you to know that as we reflect upon the goodness of God, as we reflect upon thanksgiving, as we reflect upon what it means to rejoice and have joy… We have to redefine some of the words that we use. We have to understand it for what it really is. And, and I'll do my best, or at least I'll tempt it this morning, to kind of differentiate between these truths that we know and the words that we use and how this is reflected in the life of a believer. But it ought to be reflected in every believer's life. The truth is, if we understand and truly reflect upon what He has done, what he's promised to do, and that he will finish the job, and we will stand in his presence. There's a place of joy and rejoicing in the believer's life, regardless of the circumstances of life. But we'll tell you as well to grasp that reality means, more often than not, times of trouble. That's the hitch. We don't want the trouble. We just want the joy. We don't want the challenges. We just want to whoop it up and celebrate. We don't want the darkness. We just want to scream in the middle of a crowd, but what happens in the deepest, darkest part of the night when you lay there wondering, does He know? Does He understand? Is He there? Do you ever have those times and seasons? As you grow and in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior, you grow to the place that that is the time you appreciate most, the goodness of God. You know, even the world understands that sometimes. There are some gospel singers and and those who are probably outside of the fold of faith who sing some of the songs that, that we sing this morning. You say, well, pastor, then if they're singing those, we shouldn't. Really? Even the rocks will cry out. Are you kidding me? Even the unbeliever gets it right every once in a while because of the common grace of God, and they understand in a fleeting moment, God's been good to them. And if they sing about it, I applaud that. We need to fill in the blanks and teach them how to sing in the darkest of night. And that demands a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. That differentiates us from them. But I will not silence their voice or apologize for using their songs, because God's goodness is known even to the world that we live in through common grace. And if every once in a while they're thankful for that, well, I'm thankful for that as well. Isn't it funny? How critical we can be. Can you just indulge me for a moment? A spirit of rejoicing and a critical spirit are not compatible. you got to pick a side. I'm not talking about a critical spirit that points out things that need to be corrected. That happens to happen from time to time. But if everything in your life is bad, and hard and unfair and inglorious. You'll never be able to do what Paul does and what Paul encourages us to do in Philippians chapter 4. So, he'll introduce us to the secret as he writes to this church at Philippi. Pray with me, please. Father, thank You again for Your goodness. We thank You for Your blessings, we thank You that not only are You good in good times, You are good all of the time. And even in our joy, we don't even scratch the surface surface of Your goodness towards us. As we count our blessings, as we reframe our life, as we put some things in perspective, I pray that You would give us a spirit of joy and rejoicing that is defined in Scripture, That is promised through the Spirit, that is secured in Christ, and that is realized by every good and perfect gift coming from God above, who isn't stingy, but lavishes his love upon us. Seems like sometimes we're redundant in these Thanksgiving seasons, always going back to the same theme, but maybe that's important because it's easy to lose our perspective, it's easy to redefine the words, and it's easy to lose our way. We have been blessed indeed. Teach us to count our blessings, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Paul writes to this city of Philippi, these believers at Philippi, in what is often stated as a letter of joy. He spends his whole time in these four chapters looking at things to be joyful for, to be joyful of that local church in Philippi and the support that they would had among themselves, to be joyful in their theology that our King reigns forevermore, to be joyful in the difficult challenges of life when we have and when we don't have, to be joyful even in the midst of conflict, and that's the context in chapter 4, There were some problems in the church. There were a couple of women who weren't getting along, and Paul addresses that. But to have a spirit of joy tied to a belief that no matter what what happens in this world, for those whom he knows, everything's going to be okay. Would you hear that before? You will continue to hear it from me because I've been through those valleys. You've watched me for 23 years. I pray that I have been, at least for the most part, a good example. And I've had my dark days and dark valleys. But I have so much to be thankful for because it was those times that I learned these things Funny enough, that's the Apostle Paul. So he writes this letter of joy to celebrate life. He sits in a prison in Rome. Not a palace, a prison in Rome. How in the world does a guy who was in prison in Rome muster up a notion to be joyful and to rejoice and to hold the church accountable to that and and, and, and exemplify that in your life? Well, he does that throughout the book of Philippians, and the chief theme is to encourage God's people to have a spirit of joy and recognition that a better day is coming, and to live out his life manifesting that truth so others might find their way. Philippians was on the road that was called the Ignatian Road. Rome built it. It travels across the whole area of Macedonia from east to west. Where Philippi is located, it was a a particularly rich colony of the city of Rome, but that didn't always translate into the church. Although they had some means, that this church on several occasions took up offerings for Paul in his need and sent him money on his missionary journeys. And, and in the end of this letter, chapter 4 in particular, he is thanking them for their faithfulness to them. Philippi was a developed city, if you would. It had a school of medicine. It had agriculture. It had gold mining. It was a strong economy and blessed even with the freedoms that they had as a Roman colony. And yet that's not how Paul approaches this whole spirit of joy. He reminds them in its context and in so many words that He had suffered throughout his life rejection and beatings and imprisonment, and he would ultimately know death at at his faith in Jesus Christ. But he didn't become discouraged. He was confident in what Christ had done and accomplished for him, and he's simply trying to pass that on to these believers in Philippi. He says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Many of you are familiar with these verses at least in recognition, but joy comes when you're familiar with these verses in reality. Paul writes, we have this treasure in jars of clay, to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. For we are afflicted in every way, and then he says, but not crushed, (laughs) You you ever been there? He says again in a very descriptive kind of way, perplexed, we're not sure, we don't know what to do next, but we're never driven to despair. We always have a fallback, and that is the goodness of God and the faithfulness of our Savior. He says again in that passage in Corinthians that at times we'll be persecuted, but we will never be forsaken. I believe that there's coming a time in the West that we need to be very aware of that promise, persecuted but not forsaken. We have been so blessed and in many ways spoiled in the west. But there's a rising voice of of anger towards God's people and his church. And how that plays itself out, I don't know. But when it plays itself out, I will stand in the place of believing that he hasn't forgotten about us. He hasn't forsaken us and Pretty soon He's coming for us. That's what Paul writes to these believers in Corinth. At times, we're even struck down. We're flat on our back, but we're never destroyed. We always get up again and carry on and do the bidding of God. Why? Because we're always carrying about in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus will be manifest in our bodies. For me to live is Christ, and to die is gain, and in between may it be lived for His glory in a spirit of joy. That's what Paul is trying to communicate. And as he communicates that, he kind of wraps up the whole book, if you're in chapter 4, I hope you are, in Philippians, in verse 19, by the promise that God will supply every need of yours according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. See, the only problem with that verse is in the church. Because we don't do a very good job of defining needs. We do a wonderful job at once. Expectations. Demands even upon God. But how many of us really know need? How many of us really live in, in, in a world where we're just not sure even of tomorrow? Well, not many of us. We, we've been blessed indeed. And Paul says, through my example and my words to you, In your need, God will meet those needs always, and to our God and Father be glory forever and forever. Let's look at the text, if you would, in Philippians chapter 4, and talk about this notion of spiritual joy. Spiritual joy is not an attitude dependent on chance or circumstances. It's a deep and abiding confidence that regardless of one's circumstances in life, all is well between the believer and the Lord. Joy really rests on relationship. And the joy that rests on relationship is not these horizontal relationships. Can I tell you one thing I've learned in church ministry over 40 years? Sooner or later, somebody, if not everybody, lets you down. Did you ever notice that? Christ never does. Never, never never. So, he calls us in verse 4 to rejoice in the Lord always. The word that he uses and what he's calling us to is habitual practice of rejoicing, to be rejoicing all of the time, in good times and in bad times and difficult times and in challenging times and in times of great blessing, learn to and be about the business of rejoicing in the Lord always always. What do you suppose he means by always? Let's take a wild guess. Always. Right? It's called the perspicuity of Scripture. He he says what he means, be always. Remember, this is the man who was writing this letter of joy from where? From a dungeon prison. He hasn't much in these earthly terms to be celebratory about, but but he's writing to them to rejoice Always, to rejoice, he says it again in, in, in real emphasis. We would understand that that rejoicing or joy is a distinctive mark of believers. And only believers can rise against the painful realities of life. But here's the key: As believers, we must understand that joy and rejoicing is not an emotion. It is a reality. And once you get the reality right, the emotion will follow. But if you don't get the reality right, you will be up and down and up and down and up and down to the circumstances of life, unstable in all of your ways. It is not a feeling. Do you think I feel? Oh, I shouldn't tell you. I will. Do you think I'm always feeling up to take your Bibles and turn with me, please? I don't have the luxury of you of hitting snooze or turning off that alarm and saying, maybe maybe next week. Life is hard sometimes. Whether we feel like it or not, we do what we've been called to do, and we rest and trust in His dependency. And when I get the opportunity, and I take the opportunity, even when I don't feel like it, I will say, take your Bibles, and I will passionately say, hasn't God been good? That's what Paul's doing to the church at Philippi. Do you understand his goodness? It's not just a feeling. It is tied to the truths, and those truths are the very things that he mentions throughout the first four chapters. He then says, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Your long-suffering and your patience, your goodwill, and your friendliness, your generosity, let it be known to everyone. Remember, this is a very wealthy city. Perhaps there were people in in, in the church at Philippi who were of means, and they understood that those means were gifts of God, and they used them to encourage Paul, but he is simply saying, be gracious and humble in how you live your life. Learn to be joyful, gracious and and humble, a couple of difficult lessons, be gracious, understand that everything that you have has been given by the hand of God. And immediately, as men, we say, whoa, 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 pastor, I've worked hard for this. I watched my grandfather work hard in a shoe factory. At EJ for 40-some years of his life. Yes? Kind of lived day to day and month to month. Was God gracious to him? Absolutely. Absolutely. I've been around very generous people who understand that God has been gracious to them, and then all of us who, who do what God calls us to do must accept from God's hand whatever He gives us, providing for our needs or blessing us in abundance, and everywhere in between and understand that whatever we have is by grace. That's a hard thing to hang on to, isn't it? By grace. Let your gracious humility, if we understand grace, that results in humility. Humility. And that humility says, I don't deserve any of this, and yet God has been so good. You see how all of that goes? So, He's teaching them, let that part of your personhood, your reasonableness be known to all men. Let everybody know as you testify to other believers that God is good, and let that world out there that is persecuting you know that God is good. Let your reasonableness, your gentle forbearance, your, your gracious humility be known in the way you live your life. And let part of that way be joy and rejoicing. And then he, he includes a phrase there, the Lord is at hand. Commentators take this a couple of different ways. Some talk about the imminence of the Lord, that He's always present through the indwelling Spirit of God. God is never far away from us. He's near to the heart of the brokenhearted. We can look at all of the Scriptures. God is always close at hand. And a simple cry to Him, this is overwhelming to me, as His children, a simple cry to Him yields the undivided attention of the God of the universe to you. Do you ever stop to think about that? You want to… You want to talk about blessed? You want to talk about something to be thankful for? But I also believe that he's speaking in eschatological terms or, or future terms here. He's saying, your situation today will not last forever. The Lord is at hand. Pretty soon this life is over, and you will get your full inheritance Pretty soon, this life, no matter how bad it might be, hears the sound of a trumpet and you will stand in his presence. He's saying, Don't ever forget that life is short, but the glory of our God and his goodness allows us to rejoice even in the shortness of life, knowing the inexpressible joy that comes when he lavishes the fulfillment of all of these promises on us. And for those in difficult times, you say, "Even so, come Lord Jesus." and I 'll join you on that, but we can be joyful today too. He's simply saying, "This is temporary." Paul's looking at his imprisonment as, as temporary. He's going to see his death as an answer to prayer, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. Wow, that's a difficult thing, but he 's trying to instruct these believers in Philippi to understand that God is close to us in the middle of every circumstance in life, and He will close out this life someday, and we will see His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And that is why I I live my life or attempt to on that mantra, a better day is coming, because He doesn't promise me everything in this life. But He promises me everything in Christ, and it will happen. God always keeps His promises. So, as He calls them to this place and reminds them of the presence of God and and calls them to remember that this is fleeting and it won't last forever, He says, in light of all of that, do not be anxious about anything. Why? Because the Lord is near. Why? Because He's coming again. Why? Because there's nothing outside of His control. He is sovereign over everything. Don't be anxious about anything. Now, point of correction here. You'll hear from well-intended, but I believe misguided people that worry and anxiety should never be a part of a Christian's life. Good luck with that. The problem isn't feeling anxious about a circumstance. The problem isn't with being worried about something. The problem is, what are you going to do with that? You can either choose to give that over to God, or you can choose to wallow in that, and He's warning us, don't live there. We can't control our emotions. They come, and they're often circumstantial. But he's not talking about emotions, is he? So, he's saying, put that emotion aside just for a second and counter that with truth, true truth, things you know to be true, so that when anxiety seeks to overwhelm you, you can say, no, thank you. God is good all of the time. For all my life, he has been faithful. Is that your testimony? As you reflect upon this, there are things that Christians get angry sometimes, yes? I'll share some emails with you. Yeah, that it happens. Oh, well, they must not be Christians. No, they're not home yet. God's not done with them yet. What damage do we cause for those who are struggling with anxiety when we just say, if you're a Christian, you wouldn't have anxiety. Of course you'll have anxiety. Of course you worry. Question is. What are you going to do with it? You're not, you're not called to live that way. You're called to what? To rejoice. Now, now, look what he does here with the words. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. He's saying, okay, so when you're anxious, don't wallow there. There's an answer to that anxiety. And what is that answer? But in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your requests be made known to God. Apprehension and fear and worry that is incessant and never-ending is the mark of those without hope. But as God's people, we have a blessed hope of the glorious appearing of the great God and Savior who loves us, will keep us, and will bring us home someday. He is saying when these times start to overwhelm you, When this anxiety takes a bite out of your life, when worry becomes nothing that is fleeting but almost a temperamental kind of thing, He's asking for an attitude adjustment, and He's calling you to instead of worrying about it, to go to the only one who can do anything about it, let your request be made known to God. What is a supplication? It is a humble cry and plead to God, I don't know what to do, I need your help. It may be a temporal need, maybe a personal need, maybe a, a relational need. You could, it, it could come in any any kind of way, but it's this this ability to say, I'm not going to wallow here. I will in humility, gracious humility, remember, let your sweet reasonableness, your gentleness, your gracious humility in Christ be known to all men, I will turn to Him and plea, but again, for needs. Not for wants, not for desires, needs. So, He says, when this anxiety seems to become overwhelming, I want you to stop worrying about everything. And I want you to start praying about everything. And as you pray, I want you to acknowledge God's goodness in the past and pray for God's provision today, let your request be made known unto God. What are we doing when we pray that way, when we're anxious? We are saying to God, for all my life you have been faithful. My faith is wavering a little bit today. Remind me of all of that goodness so I can be free of anxiety and care today. Take me to the past and remind me that you've always gotten me through and show me that you're going to get me through again. You see the difference there? Anxiety and thanksgiving. Now, For those who struggle with anxiety, this isn't some magical potion. Say a quick prayer and it all goes away. There are besetting issues for all of us. It is being in a spirit of prayer all the time because you know you're susceptible to anxiety and worry. And you realize that joy is bigger than the emotion of anxiety and worry. Joy. Is rooted in a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. So when you pray and make your request known to God, you are acknowledging that you can't do it, but you believe that He can. We do this with people in our families, don't we? We pray that God would rescue their soul and save them from their sins. Why are we praying that prayer to God? Why don't we just tell them the gospel? because only God saved. You don't, you don't save, right? We are dependent upon God for that miracle. I would suggest that every day we're dependent on God. We just don't know it. And in His graciousness, He provides, and it goes right over our head, and the only thing we see is what's broken. We never see in gracious humility that God is always faithful. As you reflect upon that a little bit in this difference between anxiety and fear. Gordon Fee in his commentary on Philippians says, "'Thanksgiving is the explicit acknowledgement of our creatureliness and dependence. It is a recognition that everything comes as a gift. It is a verbalization before God of His goodness and generosity.'" That's really important. An explicit acknowledgement of our creatureliness. What does that mean? Of our awareness that we are contingent beings, that we're never designed to do this on our own. It is a reminder... That we can't do it on our own, but also a reminder that without God, nothing in this world works. So we are so dependent on Him that we must trust Him with this realization that I can't and nothing works without God. So, in our humble plea, we acknowledge finally that. We don't always live there. Pretty self sufficient, aren't we, sometimes? But this acknowledgement, that we are contingent and we can't make life work without God, reminds us that in the midst of all of that as we address our fear and anxiety through prayer and supplication, God hears us and answers our prayer. When you acknowledge your utter dependency on God you're expressing your complete trust in him. I've had seasons like that. Pretty rough first five or six months of the year for me. I remember praying, I, I, can't, I can't do this anymore. That's a prayer of utter dependence. This is too much, I can't, I can't, I can't. But it's also an acknowledgement. There's only one who can. I'm just begging you. I am pleading with you. Get me through this. Some of you know those seasons. By the way, if you know what it means to rejoice in the Lord always, you've learned that through hard times. Seldom do we learn it when the showers of blessing are falling on us. Yes? an explicit acknowledgment. I'm done. I can't. But God, I believe that you can. And when we get to that place, there's a peace that comes over us. We exchange our anxiety for his peace, this, this tranquilness, this understanding, and even the lack of understanding of an overwhelming sense of calm and resolve as God answers our prayers and in some tangible way, takes away those fears and anxieties, reminds us of His glory, and gives us peace. And this is important, even though nothing around us has changed. That, that's the key. He grants us peace even though nothing around us has changed. And this is what He talks about concerning that peace. surpasses all understanding. I shouldn't be at peace with this. I don't know why I'm okay with this, right? That is the peace of God that comes by taking everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving to Him, and it is that peace that will guard your heart from anxiety and fear. It is a peace that will guide, guard your mind in Jesus Christ. He will change your thinking. He will replace that, that thinking that, that you know it, don't you? Nobody loves me. Everybody hates me. I'm going to go eat worms. We go with our requests, and God says, really? really? That, that's what you're bringing to me? And He reminds me of His goodness. He reminds me that all of our lives He's been faithful. He says to us, have I ever let you down? And He sustains us in the middle of that truth. It is the peace of God that passes understanding. I pray that you know it. I pray that you have it. And if you don't, I pray that He gives it. But there are some keys to that that we've addressed in the context of this passage. And one of the keys… Arthur points out, is that salvation's initial euphoria and excitement, let me just add a descriptive statement, mm-hmm. the thrill when you come to know Christ as Savior and you see His glory that you never saw before, it's like nothing else, and then that seed that has taken root, Satan comes to try and snatch and to starve, and to crush, and to extinguish. And you learn that real excitement, and real euphoria, and true salvation is a deep, rich, full, profound understanding that regardless of the circumstances of life, God is good, and He's good all of the time. Some of you need to grow up. If you're tottering like a toddler and you've been saved for any length of time, you are missing this element in in your life. You're forgetting to understand that it is in the darkest of times that God's glory becomes the clearest, and our humility, our gracious humility becomes so, so important to navigate those challenges. So, he says, finally, finally, brothers, finally, believers, again, a reminder The world can never have this peace. That's why world leaders and and people of prominence and and in Hollywood and on on the athletic field, that's why they they try and control their own destinies. That's why they run around like their hair is on fire because they have no place to rest their weary souls because this is all they have. This is as good as it gets, and they have no control over that whatsoever whatsoever. Pay close attention. The sooner you realize you have no control over anything, the more humble you will become that our Savior is over all things, and everything's going to be okay. He writes to them, finally, I want you to take this into account. I want you to consider these things, and He's going to tell us what this, this peace and this grace and this gracious humbleness looks like. And finally, whatsoever is true, that which conforms to gospel truth, whatsoever is true, Christ is all-sufficient, and you were never intended to be self-sufficient. Did you hear that? Christ is all-sufficient, and you were never intended to be self-sufficient. Give up that dream right now, but you can't until you learn that Christ is all-sufficient. Whatever is true, focus on those things. Whatever is honorable, that which is noble and majestic and worthy of our respect, whatever is just, just meaning right in keeping with the person and character of God, focus on the righteousness of God in Christ and that limited righteousness in your world, whatever is pure, as opposed to the thoughts of the wicked and the unclean and the undefiled, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is morally pure, if you look at this list and you look at the social concerns of our day, there couldn't be a clear contrast between our world and its leaders. And the people of God who've been called out of that world. Do they focus on what is true? No, they make up their own truth. Do they focus what's honorable? No. Just? No. Pure? No. Lovely? No. Commendable? No. Whatever is admirable, whatever is highly regarded and lofty, whatever is excellent, moral excellence and virtue, those are the things that He calls us to focus on, and if there is anything worthy of praise, allow your mind to be captured with those things. When you're anxious and concerned and robbed of your peace, evaluate, consider, and calculate these good and perfect gifts that come from above. For every good and perfect gift comes from the Father which is above, and in Him there is no variableness. He's not stingy. He doesn't respect persons. He doesn't treat people different is always honorable and just and pure and lovely, commendable. If there's anything worthy of praise, think about those things. Now, here's the trap. If you don't have the peace of God guarding your mind, your mind can go to the opposite of this list, and all you see is what's broken in this life. A true test is watching the news at night, right? (laughs) Where, Where does your mind go? My mind goes to the place that this is just temporary and a better day is coming. My mind goes to envision the throne of God where Christ is grabbing the arms of the throne, getting ready to stand in return for His own. My mind goes to the place where I finally recognize, even for a fleeting moment, this is not my home. This is not what I was promised. There must be something more. And my spirit, God's spirit witnessing to my spirit says, there is absolutely more, and it's in Christ alone. You see how that all works? What's your mindset today? Peace can be elusive, and minds can wander, and worries can pop up. Make sure you see that which is in tune with the goodness of God. And Paul then can say in humility, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. I wish I could say that. I I can't. I'm working on it. I'm better than I used to be. But here's Paul in a dungeon saying, It's all good. What are you so worried about? What is the somberness? Don't you understand that we win? Don't you understand that that He's coming? Don't you understand the Lord is at hand? He's near? Paul said, I'm doing my best to live that out as an example in front of you so that you might know the God of peace and His faithfulness and that the God of peace Will be with you. You know we can look at this text every Thanksgiving until we hear the sound of a trumpet, and there's always something else to glean. When you pray earnestly, you're realizing that you have control over nothing, nothing, nothing. But our King sits on the throne and is in control of everything, everything, everything. And do you really think he's going to keep that from you? You just have to measure it in a different way. As Paul calls them to do that, he's trying to live that out. And, and then he gets very personal in his letter and, and, and he says, and this is this is kind of hard for us to, to grasp sometimes. He, he says, I've learned to go without. I've learned that... It, doesn't always work out the way I want it to work out. I've learned that life is hard. You know, in so many churches today that is absent from the pulpit, have you learned that life is hard, but God is bigger? That, that's the passage. That's what we have to depend upon. That's what He's calling us back to. That's why Peter says in in his epistle that that, that he is calling out and and, and crying out for us to, to live our lives for His glory alone and be reminded every step of the way that we're to be hopeful people, not artificial, that we need to be hopeful because of God's promises. We need to be hopeful because He always keeps those promises, and Sinclair Ferguson does a great job capturing that. Christian is by definition a hopeful person. And That hope is not artificial self-projection. It is produced in us by God's promises because we love and trust the Lord. We believe the promises He's given in His Word. And they become the spectacle lenses through which we view everything. And that alone is what interjects the melody of hope into our lives. Peter says it a little bit more theologically, for this very reason. Add to your faith or supplement your faith with virtue, virtue with knowledge, knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and increasing... They keep you from becoming ineffective and unfaithful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Have you noticed that just when you seem to capture the peace of God in an instant, it runs away when we face the next thing? The more we grow in grace and in knowledge, the more we build our faith around the truth, the more we increase in that faith, the less we turn back to that ineffective, unfaithful, worrying and anxiety and all of those things that plague our life. This is a process, folks. So if you're thinking, man, I didn't come to church on Thanksgiving to be beat up about the peace of God, I'm not beating you up at all. I'm just asking you to take the next step. Wherever you are, No matter how little a grasp or greater grasp you have on this truth, take the next step. Do what Paul says and put it into practice until the next time, and then take that next step until the next time, and take that next step until the next time, and take that next step. And And as we add to our faith, perhaps someday we get to this stature of the Apostle Paul where we can say, just watch me. This, this, This is how it's done. But we're not there yet. May the God of peace be with you. It's the very way, the very prayer that Paul starts the text. Flip over quickly just to chapter 1, where Paul prays for these believers before he teaches them this message about joy. And it is my prayer, verse 9, that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So you may approve that which is excellent, think on these things, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Did you ever notice how many times in Scripture Paul prays that God receive all of the glory and honor and praise? Did you ever notice that? Isn't that exactly what Paul's saying in very practical terms? Philippians chapter 4, at the end of the day, because He is God and you are not, He will supply every need, and as He does, to our God and Father be glory forever and forever. you guys get a grip on this, it will change how you worship, and you can sing, for all my life He has been faithful, and I will sing of the goodness of God, Jude. Glorious doxology says, now to Him who was able to keep you from stumbling, and to prevent you blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy great joy. To the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory and majesty, dominion and authority before all time, both now and forevermore, and even in my life. And God's people said, amen. Amen. May it be so. Father, thank You. You have been so, so good, and we will sing the goodness of God. Sometimes the song and sometimes the notion is challenged and attacked in ways that are difficult to bear, circumstances that we never saw coming. Teach us to think on good things, to pray and to plead with all thanksgiving for the things that we need and wait, so that we might know the peace of God and stand in His presence singing of the goodness of God in our lives. May it be so, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.